On this episode of Counter Stories, we want to give you a heads up that we will be talking around issues of violence as it, as it pertains to our communities. We want to make sure that our listeners have a chance to understand that and know that we are going to be engaging in some topics that can make be uncomfortable or that can bring up memories for our listeners. We want to make sure you know that ahead of time as we dive into this conversation about violence, in particular, gun violence. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Luz Maria Frias, deputy attorney general with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions I express are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. So today we have kind of a part one of two parts that are going to um, dive into um, some of our processing of violence. Unfortunately, the week that we are, are recording, many of us have experienced um, many news stories across the country of acute violence. In fact, um, unfortunately, we continue to deal um, with shootings in sacred spaces, issues in amongst communities. Um, and so we wanted to take a time, some time today in, in, in anticipation of next week's episode, which will dive directly into one of the um, series of incidents and reflections by, by members of our community. But we wanted to take some time to just process um, our own space and our own feelings and reactions as it relates to when violence shows up in community, how it's how it affects us, how it is reported out to others, how it gets taken up in media spaces or, or any of the places that it may go. Uh, so Counter Stories Crew family, I have to say that I'm, I'm coming to you after having just presided um, uh, along with several other clergy in the AME church over the funeral of the young man who was killed at the Mall of America and, and the grief and tragedy that happens around community in there. Um, and, and one of the things that was very interesting that came up in my family's conversations, just in a more broader sense, when violence and tragedy happens in community, unfortunately, uh, you know, it became very clear that we were in close proximity more than many other folks, you know, are to some of some um, tragic deaths throughout throughout our lifetimes. We have lost friends and family members to to gun violence in particular. And one of the challenges that we always have is that line between the deep sorrow that is felt in a reaction to it, but then also the need for our cultural practice of celebrating life. And sometimes when um, we encounter violence in some of the ways that, that we have over this past couple of years, we are stuck in a little bit of a bind because you have to feel all the feelings. You have to feel the sorrow and the hurt and the pain and all of that. But there's an arc that's supposed to happen in our, you know, our remembrance rituals that gets us eventually to a celebration of life. And sometimes it's not always possible. So I'm coming into this conversation kind of with that in mind, that kind of duality between needing to acknowledge the sorrow that's felt, but then also having to, to figure out how you move through those stages into the celebration of life, which is ultimately where we have to get. And so I'm just curious, you know, as we think about when violence hits our communities and our families and our experiences, what are, what are the things that you, that you all kind of go through and think about 
um, especially given that almost all of our communities represented here are more likely to encounter um, uh, violence in this way when you think about kind of numbers wise um, than, than, than many others. You know, for me, I grew up in inner city Chicago. I think I've said that plenty of times on the program before in a barrio. And a barrio is, you know, it's all Spanish-speaking, uh, primarily Spanish-speaking community, and tend to be low-income. Uh, where we had, we were plagued, our, our neighborhoods were plagued with gang violence, both uh, boys and girls uh, who went into gangs, um, and, and violence, as you said, as a whole. Uh, when I was 15 or 16, I'm not remembering, but uh, one of uh, my friends, best friends, Julia, was shot and killed on a Sunday afternoon, broad daylight, while she was playing basketball at a park that was three blocks away from my house. Um, and, and of course, that was devastating, and you're struggling uh, at that point how to process that. But that was one of many. You know, I can sit here and name by names other people who were shot and paralyzed as a result. You know, many guys who were um, confined to a wheelchair as a result of the violence, uh, guys who were killed, uh, girls, my girlfriend sitting next to a guy who was shot and killed her boyfriend as she sat in the passenger seat of the car that he was in uh, in a parked uh, location, right? So I, I can come up with with pl more examples than, than I need to. Um, and then I fast forward and I think, sure, that was that time. And then I think about how it impacts me as an adult, as we speak today and, and over the course of my adulthood. And I also think about the other element of how society has a certain cadence in how they respond to certain mass shootings, right? So, so there's a difference in my mind between a mass shooting and then one-on-one um, -on -one violence, as I've just described, but then police-involved uh, violence in terms of police killing unarmed uh, civilians, mostly, of course, BIPOC civilians, right? And what I reflect on is that our, our society has an understanding that when there's a mass shooting in a school, they have a set of protocols that are pretty much standardized, right? They call in grief counselors. They likely will suspend classes for that day or a period of time, and they support students. But what I've always been really frustrated with, I guess is one word, puzzled is another word, as to why that same level of support isn't there for everything else, right? If you think about the young boy that was just shot, um, you know, at Jimmy Lee or, or the young man that you refer to, Anthony, who was killed at MOA, Mall of America, our communities are grieving, right? I mean, that trauma is there for them. There is primary trauma and there is secondary trauma. So why don't we have this infrastructure in place? Why don't we have that support system to begin to offer this type of counseling, mental health support for a community when those shootings take place one-on-one, -on -one, the way we've just described, or and in addition to police-involved shooting of unarmed BIPOC civilians, right? Or anybody, quite honestly, but our focus today is, is, is our communities. And that's what's been really troublesome in my mind, particularly if you think about the audience. So many of our 
community BIPOC members lack health insurance or lack mental health access, right? Support. So the need is even more acute when we talk about our BIPOC communities. And, you know, most of our folks historically have turned to clergy, you know, for that type of support, collectively speaking. There's not enough clergy, there's not, there are not enough Anthony Galloways that we wish we would have in the world to be able to respond individually to all these families, right? So you find yourself likely in group settings. But that's the, just a really big hole. Um, and I, I've been struggling with this since, quite honestly, since Jamar Clark was shot and killed in 2015 because the hurt is just so deep and community, you know, whether it's city government or state government or county, whomever, feds, whomever, they can easily have these protocols in place. And how much more tolerable would our lives be grieving through that, right? It's not a, a, an on-off switch. I don't fool myself by any measure, but... For goodness sake, it's like there's no support there as a society, as a collective. And that just boggles my mind. I think what, what I've been seeing is that it's the community has stepped up to, to create those spaces, right? To create these yep. support spaces. Yep. I know that after the shootings um, in California this week, which we'll talk about next week, there was an API virtual um, gathering for folks to just process together. And so it really ends up back on us to help to heal our community, um, which puts a lot of pressure on some folks, right? It puts a lot of pressure on the folks that people tend, in mm -hmm. our, within our communities that people tend to look to, to create those spaces. That the, you know, there are certain people that we ask, you know, we're having trouble processing this. Would you mind hosting something? There, so it becomes heavy on those folks on top of what they do every day. And on top of their grief, on exactly. top of their own On top grief. of their own grief. So I feel like, yes, we need support on a, you know, a state, a local state level. At the same time, I don't know how many people would utilize it because it's coming from the government. I think you can contract out, though. I mean, they can pay for it and just contract out. You know, there there's a couple levels. Lou's triggered, you, you triggered, you know, when you mentioned Jamar Clark, we can throw um, Philandro Castile in there. I mean, that violence, those shootings had a different impact on me personally than the young men that just lost their lives. Uh, this teenager at Jimmy Lee, these, these shootings were impactful, but I think there's, for me, there was a different visceral reaction. If, if this, if it makes sense, if I can explain this, because in the AI population, now I'm talking specifically more about, about shootings, because there are different other forms of violence that I think vary in the AI community, the American Indian community. But when we look at violence or shootings or deaths that happen to individuals in the AI community, um, a higher percentage of that is perpetrated by folks outside of our community. I say that because the incidences with Jamar Clark and Philandro were stark 
because it involved not, not only members from outside of our community, it involved individuals who were hired to serve and protect our communities. So that kind of brings it to a whole different level. The incidences that, you know, at the mall and unfortunately at Jimmy Lee, when it involves individuals from our, within our community, that while it's painful, while it's still painful, my, the, my reaction is different because I have to search so much deeper for what's where you know what's happening where where is this coming from why you know they they've kind of with the incident at 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 Jimmy Lee apparently you know through interviews and discussions with the the young man who who shot the teen it sounds like it was a pure reaction out of incidences that were happening between him and these young men just a total you know, when I grew up, when I when I grew up, we there were incidences, things happened. You know, you 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 don't get along with everybody, but you don't kill them. We fought. I mean, you know, it, 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 young men, people nowadays, they're not they they not only know don't know how to deal with with um, disappointment, anger. Um, you know, disagreements, they, they pull out a gun and in a split second create an action that they cannot come back from. And to me, that's a whole total different kind of grief, kind of, kind of thing that the, the community then has to deal with because now we have grieving families and family members on both sides over an incident that just happened probably in a split second that changes those everyone's lives forever. The past couple of weeks have been rough watching everything that's been happening on TV and having discussions with with my loved one here, and we're 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 bewildered. We're we're just bewildered with the violence and let alone the grief and, 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 and everything else. And, and so, you know, and I'm not trying to separate the two, but I'm just saying my reactions to these things kind of differ depending on the circumstances. But I think when it's, when it, when it's perpetrated within our own community, that's, you know, that's almost sometimes tougher to deal with. And, and that, that piece of nuance is something that has come up a lot in the circles that I've, I've been in, both with students and adults trying to pro process and work through some of these things. Um, you know, number one, let me be clear. You know, I be began the podcast talking about our proximity. What I mean is us four here, not that you're more likely to find violence in communities of color than white communities. We know that the, that's not what the data says. Um, you know, so so you can find violence in many different different areas. I'm talking about just us four because of the nature of our work and the nature of the community circles that we're in. We tend to find ourselves connected to to folks who face this particular tragedy. But uh, Brother Don, I think I think your what you talked about in terms of how we used to take care of things is is an important piece of distinction. Those fights, those conflicts that are resolved in the quote unquote street way 
that we, we often folks talk about, those still happen. <laughs> and so I, I want to make sure that's clear that like folks still fight and that's all it is and they keep it moving. But we but but I do have a similar feeling and sense. And, and this is where we got to get with others and connect that experience. I got a sense that unlike previous times, unlike when I was younger, even OK, um, unlike those times, uh, the possibility that somebody brings a gun or a weapon into the situation to me also feels like that has increased. And that is something that I'm trying to process and ponder right now, because if folks are just going to duke it out on the playground and, and or or at the McDonald's in Midway, as me and some of my friends joke about, we used to get together and fight and that was done. And then you kept moving. It wasn't it wasn't, you know, the the, the willingness to allow somebody's life to be gone was very different than now. And 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 that's problematic to me, not just in in urban communities, but this is happening in rural communities. This is happening in 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 places all the way around in. And and I and I think and younger and younger. I mean, we're hearing stories about six-year-olds finding access to their parents is gone, right? It has crossed the veil into the places that we thought were sacred. Yes, especially with the location of all these recent shootings in Minnesota, Mall of America, a rec center, a school. Those are all the places that we're supposed to feel safe. And, and we're not anymore. And that's super scary. I mean, every here's my reaction. Every time I hear that there's been a shooting, I've become a little numb to it. And then I always question myself, well, what are we going to do about it? There's no, no gun legislation is not going to happen in my lifetime, I don't think. Like, I'm at that point, right? And so I'm just I'm I'm frustrated. I'm going. This is what this is what America is. This is what America is known for: mass shootings, shooting each other, everyone having guns. That's what the international community thinks of us. And you know what? They're not wrong at this point. And it's it's very much one of those. I'm immediately angry, and then I'm immediately discouraged that any change is ever going to happen. Because access to guns is just. We have so many guns and the access to them is just so easy. I was listening to a Brookings Institute, to your point, Haley, yesterday that said, for every 100 people, there are 120 guns, which means that some folks have multiple guns and, of course, some folks don't have any guns. But the point being is we now have more guns per capita than other countries around the, the world. That was a point. Well, it just you know one of one of the one of, I always look for for that question upstream. Uh, uh, Dr. Pam Collins, who is a professor at Gallaudet University, I have been working with her uh, recently, and she tells this one this this powerful um, kind of story analogy. And she said, you know, where somebody sees babies drowning in a, in a river, and the person gets in and starts to try to save the baby and drowning in that river. And then other people come and jump in and every sudden everybody's jumping in to save the baby in the river. And then one person starts, gets out of the river and they get ridiculed and they get pushed back on because that person is starting to walk upstream and people are coming in saying, why aren't you jumping into the river to save these babies with the rest of us? And the person responds, I'm trying to go up the river to see who's throwing the babies in in the first place. And, and, that that story, and I don't know what cultural community it comes from. I assume it's Afrocentric because that's the kind of work that she does. But um, it, it, one of the things that that 
I'm trying to do is think upstream a little bit. And it's hard when we have to deal and attend with the real hurt right now. But 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 upstream, right? What has changed about our willingness to kill? It, it seems like our willingness to kill has increased. And I'm not just talking about the folks who are who are who are uh, involved in taking somebody else's life. I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about the culture and the fervor around what somebody's willing to do. I will never forget me and me and, and Alana and the kiddos. Um, I don't know if you remember when we took a quarantine road trip to, to just be oh, I out. Love that right. One. Yeah. And we were in yeah. Tennessee and there's this huge log jam because one of the, like in, in, in Memphis, there's, there's this one bridge that, it had a crack in it and it diverted all this traffic for miles around. It was this epic thing that was national news. And we were stuck in there. So we pull into this gas station and so, and this guy is just sitting at the counter and he's talking about how somebody, you know, it's a traffic jam. So everybody's nerves are up and elevated. I think I was late being able to record um, a, one of our podcasts for the um, Arc of Justice work plea. We had to reschedule into a hotel room. I think you remember that. And so... Um, I'm sitting there at the, at the at the at the at the at the counter, and this guy's telling a story like you know this person who was just being a jerk to him in the car, and and I was like okay, people's gonna be jerks to the car, and he said but I shut that up real quick. I put my and I can't remember what name and 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 caliber gun he said, but he said I just put it on the dashboard and that shut him up real quick, and I'm sitting there going, and and I said I said bro. Why was that necessary? Like, and it wasn't like I wasn't going to pick no fight with this guy because clearly he already told me he was armed. But I was just like, man, he must have got really got under your skin. Skin, you know that it got to the point where you had to put the put the put the piece on the on the dashboard. And he said, look, I'm ready for it anytime, any place. And it's like this 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 willingness to 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 take someone out that just it feels real different. And I'm curious about what what. What do we have to do in order to re- either restore or to, to what to understand what gets somebody to the point where life is no longer sacred enough for me to not look for something else? And I say this having presided over a funeral where the shooters tried to come up into the funeral and we had to deal with that in the process. So so like there's there's I'm trying to wrestle with that. What is this willingness to kill? There's so much more. In, in in that question than than just, you know, oh, it's it's what's popular these days or what people will say, oh, video games and movies and, and extra, extra. But you know what? It's this toxic masculinity as well. It's the willingness to say, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. I'll do anything. I just, yeah, I don't know how to explain it, but there is that part of it, I think, too, that, that boys are being raised to be tough. Do what it takes. Protect your family, right? And so some men take that and they say, "Well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry, and I'm not gonna be afraid to show it to people, so they know how tough I am." So let me let me complicate that further because I'm a I'm an avid gun range uh, attendant. <laughs> All right, I my accuracy is is good. I like I'm I'm in gun culture spaces, and I'm not scared of any of those folks, and those aren't the folks that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Pulling the trigger here, right. like like right. if if we're just if we're talking about the folks who be at the range who know their guns and nope. all that kind of stuff, these ain't the folks that's pulling these triggers. And so and and these are all folks who play the video games, and we we'll we'll talk guns in a minute. <laughs> the problem is that 
emotions are high in this country and people get mad real quick. I mean, I'm surpri- I'm really surprised there aren't more road rage shootings just because emotions people get angry quick, they get defensive quick. You know, it's not it's not a f- <laughs> it's not very friendly anymore because you never know who's packing now. Yeah, I was I'm I'm struggling with because I've got a lot of thoughts and I know they're they're this is not a question that that has one right. single answer, right. right? I mean, it's a complicated and it has a lot of entry points. But one of those entry points in my mind is along the lines of just folks wanting this instant gratification almost, but also unwillingness to consider and be open to someone else's point of view, right? To, to actually entertain, to have the emotional um, capacity to identify, I may not be right, right? Someone else might have a better position or, or a better point of view. And then also the willingness to admit that, you know, yours is not the only way to look at. And then, you know, lastly, de-escalation and resolving conflict. Right. And and being able to de-escalate. I, I watched a a video not too long ago, probably the last two weeks or so. It was really interesting and, and it came up on, on my feed just really innocuously. And it was um a martial arts class. And the instructor uh was standing in front of this group of men and saying, um, you know, basically let's create some scenarios where violence is likely going to happen, right? So he sets up the scenario, the scenarios you're in a, in a bar and someone, a guy comes up to you and says, you know, I saw you checking out my, my, my lady or my woman, whatever the, the phrase is these days, um, you know, and, and is ready to throw down, right? And ready to, to you know, uh, be violent with you. And his response was, oh, is, is your wife's name, you know, Margaret? And the guy's like, no, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, um, she looks like Margaret, and, uh, you know, I thought she was Margaret. And, and so, you know, something as simple as that, right, is asking a question that totally can de-escalate. And so he gave example after example of very simple things, you know, like you're looking at me, well, yeah, I was admiring your, your, your kicks, or I was admiring your, you know, your, uh, your watch, it just completely goes a different way, right? It's, it, and this guy is, um, I think he was a former Navy SEAL, trying to just look at what are some simple de-escalation tactics that anyone, but in this case, in, in that setting, uh, men, could engage in that would completely de-escalate the conflict. And I, I see a through line between that and what we see on, you know, with police on the street with unarmed civilians and killing them, right? That's been the biggest shortfall is that law enforcement does not de-escalate the way they should compared to other countries around the world where they're trained that they must first employ and exhaust any and all de-escalation tactics before firing their weapons or taking violence, you know, using a club or, or anything, a taser on, on a civilian. I don't know what you guys think about it, but that's what's coming up for me. You know, again, I'm, I'm listening to this conversation and, and 
you're so right, Luz. There are there are many different points that we could address address this issue. I mean, so I'm I'm sitting here thinking about you know collateral lateral lateral violence that that's happening in our community and where that stems from. And and so I mean, you know, I mean. And, and so when you, when I look at that and I think, you know, even in our history here in the United States, when we look at, when we look at different immigrant populations that, that came here, that were oppressed when they first came here, like the Irish or, or, um, the Italians and other groups who have now been accepted into the dominant culture as being white at, at one time or another, they weren't considered white. And when you look at populations who have been oppressed, you see, you see portions of that population resort to violence or resort to different ways of trying to achieve success. And so for me, a part of this, you know, and I, and, and I, I hate to use, I even hate to use the term, but you know, this, this idea of, of, of a different way of life in order to earn an earning around gangsters or this gangster way of life is not anything new in oppressed communities. And I'm, I was trying to think of one aspect that would answer Anthony's question in terms of this willingness to just pick up a gun, you know, and, and to address an issue. And for me, part of that stems from that type of, of mentality that we have seen, I think, and we, and we, we hear about, I mean, we hear of these, um, shootings in our community, uh, especially our black community that seems to evolve around this, the, this, this willingness to shoot someone. And then there's, then there's a, um, a reaction, a retaliation for that incident, then there's a retaliation to that, and it keeps, it goes on, it goes on, and this willingness, you know, this, and and I think part of, I think part of that issue, or part of that problem, and now I'm, I'm, you know, I can even kind of look in my, in my own extended family, and see the differences between, between how some of my nieces and nephews have grown up and where some of them have ended up and where others haven't. But attached with that is sometimes a different mentality that I don't understand. That, that I, you know, I also am a responsible gun owner. Um, mine was as a result of, of, uh, want, you know, wanting to ensure that I could protect myself because I was working in our community to address the, 
the the uh, issue of gang violence and um and felt the need to protect myself but you know my i would never <laughs> i wouldn't other than going to the range that thing is locked up out of sight out of mind and you know and and nowhere around yeah i would never carry it even though i had an uh, a license you know i got a certificate to conceal and carry the thought never crossed my mind to do that and and what's interesting is that's that's amongst gun owners like they, this this is the the thing that gets me that that is don what you just described like to even bring a gun into a situation like causes the anxiety to come all the way up in my mind and in the mind of many folks across age groups who know and, and are responsible so i i want to i want to avoid you know the the tendency that we that we have nationally to jump into the river at the symptom point and not look upstream to the point there's something that has to take me outside of the realm of what would usually give us anxiety, right? The fact that I may encounter taking a life, the fact that I may get into a situation so dangerous that I may lose my own, you know, causes us to have certain behaviors in certain ways. And then there's some things that have us walk into that anyway. And then there's another thing that kicks in that that says that this is the response that I'm going to make. This is a response that's going to be okay. Uh, if we're talking about folks who are involved in gang in gang activity and folks who are involved in 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 drug trades and situations situations that call for uh, that that we in our psyches assume is going to be have a modicum of violence around that we have a different reaction than arguments that should be everyday things that result in the pulling out of a weapon or a gun which is not specific to any racial group i want us to be clear about this Right. The folks in white communities are dealing with this with this as well. So I'm not trying to to, to to pigeon in that way. But I do have the question about what is it that's allowing us to go from argument that should be every day, that should be something that we know how to encounter to, to having this as the tool we decide to use. But, Anthony, when we look at that, I'm I'm talking about not everyone who buys into that mentality is a gangbanger or a drug dealer. But that way, that way of life, that, that thinking um, impacts others around. So I think that's what I was getting at, that, that there's, a, there's a, a mind frame mm. that comes along with that that makes it easier to to reach that point, to make that decision, to carry that gun. I mean, why did that, why was the response in this road rate, in this car incident for the, the gentleman to feel comfortable to put his pistol, and I'm assuming, you know, you don't remember, but, you know, just to make it easy, a Smith and Wesson and whatever, you know, on, on his dashboard, I mean, <sighs> I, even when I was growing up in North Minneapolis, there was a clear distinction. And even at that time, you know, there's always been violence in our community. But we, you knew who, who, who operated in that type of environment. It was easily identified by the language they use, by the 
the way they walked, the way they talk. I mean, there was a difference between individuals like that and individuals who went to church or went to school or you know, I was a nerd, right? So I'm carrying a, a, a cello. I mean, we knew, you knew. And so what I'm getting at is that I think that there's this lateral, lateral thing that happens, not to everyone in our community, but to a lot of our young folks. We're, 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 we're losing touch with some of our folks. And I think sometimes um, it can be generational. When I, when I look at, you know, and, and I see, I see the same thing in our American Indian community, right? Sometimes it can be because it's past, if, if mom and dad, if mom and dad are caught up in that, then it gets kind of passed on to the kids. And so I don't know, I don't know what I'm getting at here. And I'm just saying yeah. that, you know, and not everyone in our communities suffer from that, but we see right. it and you know, we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think each one of you know what I'm talking about or trying to describe because, you know, I'll sit here and I think about the violence that I hear that happens in my old neighborhood in North Minneapolis. And it was, you know, there's always been violence, but not to this point. And, and so where is that coming from? You know, I, I hear, I can hear it in the language, right? I can, I can see it. I can see it um, on the street, on a, on a, you know, where, where, where people shouldn't be hanging out during the day because they're, you know, they're there because one, they're unemployed because no one will hire them. I mean, you know, here we go again. I mean, and so, so you can see it, you can hear it. You know when it's happening, but what do we do? And that's that's a huge piece of nuance, Donna. I, I appreciate you walking through that and doing it outwardly because one of the challenges we have here on Counter Stories is the fact that we're having nuanced conversations with many different facets to them, and and nothing is ever going to be a perfect soundbite, but we're going to have the conversation anyway because that's how we do in community. And so I just want to say that, you know, it, nobody here is walking with having known all the answers to know everything that needs to go into a conversation. You're hearing a snippet of our just kind of trying to wrap our minds around things as we hope that folks would do more often. And I think that actually is an important piece of the dialogue we're having right now. Um, if, if we're going to think about the many diagnoses that we put on here, I would offer one onto the table in that our disconnection from one another, right? You can say it was exasperated by COVID, but, but it, it, it used to be, I just feel like a lot less of the personable stuff that, that, allows me to interrupt a, a, a train of thought that leads me to the willingness to being able to, to take a life or even get it, go to blows with somebody. Right. And, and so I, I'm, I'm curious, we can, we can talk about a whole lot of different things, but I'm curious in your mind, what are, what are the things that you've seen in community that short circuit this, this, this mental pathway or ladder towards violence in your mind? I'll give you an example for me. One of the things I've seen for sure, and I've taken babies from all across the spectrums of life on these trips across country on the civil rights research experience. And I'm sorry, but when you've been to DC monuments, you've walked in the footsteps of folks in Selma, 
you've gone to, or even kids who've gotten a chance to travel internationally. I've done international ones too. Those folks who experience those types of things, it's like there seems to be more, time doesn't seem to be so, somebody said it earlier, that instant gratification. I think it was you, lose. Like there's time, like the, the stakes aren't as high when you see how big the world is. And so one of my like thinkings about how I might go out and start short-circuiting this is getting folks to just go and see things that are so monumental that show you that you are connected to something so much bigger that you just care less about somebody else's difficult personality or behavior or how they come at you. The petty behavior uh, that would that can get yeah. somebody killed, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You were you use the word isolation. I think you did, Anthony. And I had read a piece uh, probably a, a few months ago that spoke about technology-induced isolation. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't heard it framed that way. But technology-induced isolation, of course, refers to <laughs> social media and, and just having a phone Right. And the FOMO, fear of missing out, which is now, you know, has been clinically part of the psychology for whatever diagnostic manual that all the psychologists and psych, right? The DSRM. Thank you. Um, for over 10 years now, right? So it's, it's been in the books. It's, it's a clinical condition, FOMO, fear of missing out. So when you think about it from that standpoint, uh, you know, folks are not developing the same social skills that they can be or they could be if they're interacting one-on-one. If they could have smaller disagreements, they would learn along the lines, right? And their emotional capacity, their EQ, as it's called, can develop with it. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. You know, I, I, the, the piece I had uh, read and then did some more listening in terms of interviews speaks to how, yes, COVID has played a role, but it, it, it really augmented that, right? Because we had technology-induced isolation before that. I mean, we've had cell, uh, smartphones and, and, you know, kids as young as nine years old now are walking around with their own phones, right? Um, and so what does that do to them and their social development and capacity to, to begin to develop those social interactive skills we are social animals by definition as human beings. And so it really is a, there's some real dissonance there to know that we have created this society, right? This disruptive innovation uh, of a smartphone and the, all the cascading problems that are resulting from that. In my, in my humble opinion, you know, another strategy that I think um, has the potential to work is one of self-empowerment and really having our, our youth understand the importance that they have from a capacity standpoint, not from an ego standpoint, mm. that's very different, but from a, a humanity standpoint, right? Their value and stake in our life, the role and impact they can have in their family, in their community, in life, right? Um, to give them a sense of purpose, which is basically identifying something that's bigger than themselves, which mm -hmm. is what you're saying, mm -hmm. Anthony, right? Uh, is giving them a sense of purpose that they can really hone in on. I think about myself 
in the community that I grew up in, the barrio in Chicago, as I, I mentioned earlier, there was not a whole lot of that. There was not a whole lot of that. The, the three metrics for success in my neighborhood as a teenager was A, not joining a gang, B, not becoming pregnant before graduating high school, and C, getting that high school diploma. Hey, we had the Those same were three measures of success. We had the same. Same thing, right? Yes. Really? Yeah, that, that's it. But in that, where's the hope, right? I mean, there wasn't, it's you get a job and, and you are able then to, to contribute to your household income with your family. Uh, and that was it. We didn't have any, we didn't have, my parents didn't have the money to enroll us in all of these um, self-development classes, right? We, we didn't have money to pay for music classes. We didn't have money to pay for after-school uh, type of uh, development classes, oh, any of that stuff, right? And neither did my friends. I mean, so none of us had any of that, you know? We used to go to summer school during the summer, even though we didn't have to, because mm -hmm. it was something that kept us busy, right? It was daycare um, and food. My house, I'm going to keep it 100. <laughs> yes, and, and church. We did church. We went to mm -hmm. church for a while. It was, it was a place where we were safe and we had food. And I think that's having worked, maybe it's because I've, have, I've worked in, with nonprofits and in the nonprofit world my whole life that I feel so discouraged. And I want to bring this back also to voting and how important it is to vote for people for people who can help uh, our communities in finding places for the youth to feel like they belong and that they have a better life ahead of them so they won't risk something so dangerous that could not only lose their life but land them in prison, right? We did uh, urban tennis. We were not very oh, yeah. athletic girls. Urban tennis but, program, heck yeah. Right, and it wasn't even a, like we did end up playing tennis a lot and my sisters competed but it was really just, a, it was a place to go. It was like, you know, oh, we have to do this. We have to go here. We feel responsible. And so we're doing these things. But now that I'm working with youth organizations throughout the state, oh, my God, just to find funding to do a field trip is killer. I mean, and everyone's competing and everyone's competing with these large institutions who say they, quote, unquote, have the reach or have the most historic experience, but they're not representative of what we see needed in our community. And that's just that maybe that's why I've become so cynical. I mean, more cynical is because I've been doing this nonprofit for so long. And I see these organizations who want to do great things, who have great ideas, who have great people, but they just can't get any of that funding to make it available. And and then I hear people say, well, if it was really meaningful, you do it for free. Well, then we wouldn't be able to live our own lives, right? We wouldn't be able to pay rent. It just completely denied the, the human factor of nuance. I think exactly. That, that, exactly. That, that part gets me too. And I think that's also part of our mix here is that when we don't practice, like I, I would almost want to have an arguing class. Like I'm actually thinking about taking that to my own practice. Like we gonna all sit together and we gonna have arguments and debates. We gonna figure out how to, how to show that this ain't the end of the world. Like this ain't all that your life is hinged on is winning this argument or, 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 or repping your set or whatever it is. Um, and it, it gets me, 
it gets me back to to the fact that we have tools that we know work. We know that when folks participate in cultural enriching communities, regardless of your background, regardless of your racial background, socioeconomic, whatever it is, when you are involved in the in the cultural history of 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 your peoples, not not a made up cultural history, right, but an actual cultural history, um, your awareness of how you are connected not only to an arc of folks, but to something bigger than yourself increases. We know that when folks understand who they are and where they come from and and get to practice cultural enriching, I'm talking about everything from polka in 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 accordion music to to drum circles. When 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 kids participate in those things, you not only get skills and talents, but you get a sense of who you are that doesn't that 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 means something to you. And and I and I think one of the things that I see so um, one of the things that I see so specifically over and over and over again is that and an, an something that is part of the kids who pull the trigger, something that's part of the adults who pull the trigger, regardless of your backgrounds, regardless of all the stuff around, is you've somehow gotten to the point of believing that your life is expendable and so is those of others. And that's you know, the piece that I'm, that, that's got me laser focused upstream. One thing that that I one thing that has happened in in uh to me personally in the past 10 15 years is that um you know 10 or 15 years ago I felt comfortable if I saw a certain type of behavior happening from community members be it AI or black that I felt comfortable enough to walk up and try to engage in conversation without blaming, but to address these young individuals um, as, you know, as a member of the community, um, as an adult, um, to hopefully help them work through whatever was happening. And the past 10 or 15 years, um, I'm not as willing to do that or, or you, or I have to make a very quick assessment of what's happening and whether or not I feel safe enough to even approach this individual, to even say anything. And, and that's sad. That saddens me that. I feel that I'm at a point where, where I have to make that kind of assessment before, you know, because it, it goes back, it, you know, we're on the AI side, we're definitely tribal community and same thing in the black community. And it took all of us to raise our, our, um, in our community. But what happens when we don't feel safe? playing that role. And I'm at that point in my life where that's the role I should be playing is to give back. And, 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 um, and I think that, you know, I, for me, that's one of the sad byproducts of, of, of this that happens, um, where, 
And it's not every, it's not all young people, you know, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not all young, young, young folks in our community that are all going through this. It's, it's a portion of our community, I think, that is going through this and, and not all. So let's, let's clarify that. So, you know, and, and, um, but even, even within that, I always felt comfortable to be able to approach young folks. Now, you really have to do an assessment to make a determination that this individual isn't going to turn around and blast me. Right. Out of straight indic, you know, just, and, and, and so that's part of that mentality that I've seen evolve and get worse in portions of our community that, that, um, that, you know, I think helps, well, not not helps, but but that might explain a small portion of this. Of you know, because because we began talking about you know these incidences that create grief that are supposed to end in celebration, and you know I think you know we've been all over the place with this discussion, but it is hard to reach that celebration when when it's per- perpetrated within our own communities. I think it gets harder because there's so much more healing that has to happen on on both sides of of of, of the individuals who are involved. You know what I'm saying? This is a hard, it's a hard subject it to, is. to to deal with because you know we're not all and even though I'm a social worker, you know, dealing with these type of things it, it is um is a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work because we have to heal our ourselves, and if we and if we are struggling to even heal ourselves, to work our way through the different variations of grief um, in recovery, then you know we're in no condition to be able to help anyone else. You know, all of this, and and I and I I thank you all for being willing to to kind of walk and brain process this. And and we're going to, in this discussion, I hope you understand that part of the role of counter stories is to create space for us to be able to just go and explore places without um, the quick pushing aside and throwing away of folks just because they were ineloquent in how something came out their mouths or were willing to say something that isn't, that that's trying to process and then giving the space to do so. And we've just done that. So I thank you all for being able to to do that. I think for me, it comes down to my next action. And I think I want to continue to to do the work of of helping all the folks around be in spaces and practice the fact that we are bound together. Uh, In the words of of playwright uh, Louis Valdez, who wrote the poem In La Quetch, In La Quetch, which uh, got notoriety when it was banned and t- attempted to be banned in the Tucson Area Schools Ethnic Studies Department, which was overturned in the courts and now has become a, a, a poem that is used to unify folks together, specific, particularly the youth in ethnic studies program. And it says, uh, Tu eres mi otro yo, you are my other me. Si te hago daño a ti, if I do harm to you, me hago daño a mi mismo. I do harm to myself. Si te amo y respeto, if I love and respect you, me amo y respeto yo. I love and respect myself. I only wish that we could do that more often. 
This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions I express are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. Till next time. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.